Well, good morning again. Good to be with you guys. Will you guys turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4? <clears throat> We're continue, continuing our study through Hebrews. I'm going to read uh, the first, actually, the first 13 verses of chapter 4, and I'll pray, and we'll get started. But this is God's Word. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying, Though David so long, though David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Will you guys pray with me? Father, these are really... Really, really hard words in like a thousand different ways. They're hard words. It's hard to follow the train of thought of the writer. It's hard to hear that our fathers didn't enter a rest that you had promised them. It's hard to hear about disobedience because disobedience is something we know so well. It's hard to know if the writer's talking about the book of Numbers or about Psalms. And so, We need your help. Will you come this morning? Will you fill each of us with your spirit? Will you keep us from, will you keep me from saying anything erroneous? And if I do, would you block it from the the memory of everyone here? And now, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, would you just be present? We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. It's no secret to say that the world is not at rest. And it's no secret to say that the world hasn't been at rest since the fall. And it's no secret to say that the world will never be at rest until it fully accepts the rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ. The church is not at rest. It's not. Not even the church is at rest. It's divided. It's embattled. It argues with each other. It doesn't get along with itself. Often it only hears the gospel in piecemeal. It's not at rest. 
And the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God incarnate, and he's come into this earth, into this earth to reverse the curse that put us all in unrest. He wants to give us new life through his body by the sacrifice that he makes through his body. He wants to breathe his spirit into every single person in this room and make you vibrant, alive with life-giving generosity. He wants to do all of that. And many of us have heard that word and initially been receptive to it, initially been excited about it, and then moved away in unbelief and apostasy. It's really hard to hear. But that's essentially the summary of Hebrews chapter 4, and really that's a summary of the entire book of Hebrews. But here's the thing about Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews is going to say all of that, and he's going to say it in the most complicated way possible. He's never going to say any of that to you simply. And he's going to build, I don't know if you, do you build a web, you spin a web? He's going to spin a web of biblical references that's going to make your mind spin. And you're going to struggle over and over and over again to find footing. Now I'm sure there's passages in the New Testament that are more difficult than this one. We talk about difficult passages, right? And usually when we say the word difficult, we mean um, hard to hear or something. We mean like controversial. When we say a difficult passage, it's like that, that just is hard for me to hear. I, I, it's hard for me to believe that that's true about God. Well, this passage is difficult for a completely different reason. It's difficult because the writer's bouncing all over the place, and he keeps referring to this event in the book of Numbers that very very few of us know anything about, but he won't actually talk from Numbers. He keeps talking from the book of Psalms about Numbers, and so it makes it more and more complicated. Well, he's going to go back to Numbers today and remind us of Numbers chapter 12, Numbers chapter 13, and Numbers chapter 14 And this writer just can't get his mind off of it because this event that happened in that moment of history just seems so relevant for him. It seems so relevant for him in a church, in in the church, which is the church that he's writing to in the book of Hebrews that's struggling under persecution, that's slipping away from believing in Jesus, that's losing friendships left and right because not everybody's united in faith. And so he goes back to this moment and back to this moment and back to this moment over again. And I just, all I want to know is why. Why do you take one event? How does something like that happen in our lives? How does one event that can seem so insignificant to the outside world implant itself in one person's mind and they can't get away from it. And I'll try to illustrate it this way. But you have to pretend you're a counselor, which I know would be really hard for many of you to believe, but pretend you're a counselor, and you meet your patient for the first time, This is or your client for the first time, and they come in and you say, I, I've never done this before, but you say something like, what's going on? And they say, I'm struggling with this just kind of vague sense of anxiety. 
And you say, okay, anxiety, all right. Um, uh, tell me about your family. And you listen to their family, and it's like, wow, you seem to have an okay family. You know, your family seems to be great. It seems like you had really good parents, and your aunts and uncles, they seem awesome, and your grandparents sounded like they were really sweet. What about, what about your marriage? What about your marriage? You know, like, is there something there? And, and then you listen to them, and they're like, and you realize, no, there's just nothing going on in this marriage that merits attention. And so you say, well, what about, like, was school hard? Or I, I don't know where to go here. Where is this anxiety coming from? And they say, yeah, I don't know. I'm just anxious all the time. And so you say, well, all I know to do is for us to get together again. Would you come next week, 10 a.m. on Tuesday morning, would you come and be here? And as they're leaving, you're exchanging pleasantries, and you say, somehow you guys start talking about Lake Murray. And your client says, yeah, you know, it's funny, my grandparents used to have a house on Lake Murray, and my brother, when he was 12, my parents started letting him drive the boat. And my parents, I was only eight, but they would let my, my older brother that was 12 drive the boat. And it was so exciting for my older brother to be able to drive the boat, and I loved to get in it with them, and we would ride around the cove, and we'd have a good time. And one time, we were riding around the cove, and my brother, to play a practical joke on me, he just jumped out of the boat while it was going. And he had a life jacket on, and, and that was okay, and he landed fine, and so he didn't get hurt or anything. But I had to run up, and I had, as an eight-year-old, I had to take the cockpit and pull the throttle back and slow the boat down and circle around and pick up my brother. And you as a counselor said, wow, that's a strange story. That's funny. Okay, you know, whatever. And, that, and that's your last client of the day. And so you pack up your stuff, right? And you go home, and your wife says, how was your day? And you say, fine. And you go to bed. And next Tuesday morning rolls around, and we're back to the same vague anxiety but somehow this stupid story about the boat comes up again and it dawns on you something. Something dawns on you and you realize that moment when you had to jump into the cockpit as Freudian as all this sounds, that was a lot of responsibility for an eight-year-old, wasn't it? And when you feel moments where you have new responsibilities in your life and when things happen that are sort of unexpected, do you get anxious from them? And you say, and your client says, yeah, I do. That's why I'm here. That's what I keep telling you. And you say, I think that moment when your brother jumped out of the seat was significant. And somehow you've been playing that over and over and over again. That's the exact same thing that's going on with the writer to the Hebrews. He can't get Numbers 12 out of his mind because Numbers 12 was the moment when it was all going to be all good. It was going to be fine. God had delivered the people out of Egypt. They were going to walk into the promised land. Moses was going to reign and everything was going to be okay. But then they find out that that's not the case at all. Of course, the people... As they're nearing the promised land, the land that God was going to give to them, Canaan, Moses sends spies to see what kind, of, what kind of work it was going to take for the people of Israel to come in and conquer Canaan. And 12 spies go in, 
and only two come out with anything like courage and faith. And the rest of them, they come out of the land of Canaan and they say, these Canaanites, they're really, 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 really tall. And we're afraid of them. And we don't want to go into the land of Canaan at all. And they say this, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now, if you're God, and you know the end from the beginning, and you know as far as it, as far as it can, concerns Him, it's going to be no time. And you're going to send your son into the world to become prey, not for Canaanites only, but for Jews too. And you hear, all we want to do is go back to Egypt. How do you think you, how do you, think you respond? The writer to the Hebrews can't get the scandal out of his mind. He can't escape the horror of misplaced fear. So look at verse 1 of chapter 4 in your Bible. He begins, Therefore, while the promise of rest, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to, to reach it. So his elaborate biblical argument just pulsates with the tragedy of God's people wandering around and around in the wilderness and yet never finding the home that God wants for them. Now, you could go on and on. You really could. You could talk about Hebrews 4 forever. But instead of doing that, let's just make one small sentence. Let me just give you one small sentence that I think summarizes all of chapter 4. And there's three words in it that we'll look at, it, that we'll look at and we'll do it briefly. I think you can say in the second person imperative, this simple sentence from Hebrews chapter 4. Strive today to enter God's rest. So strive today and rest. So let's start with strive. I am convinced that one of the most difficult things in my Christian life has always been to understand how do I relate, how, how do we relate these dual things? How do I understand the relationship but between the spirit-infused effort that I'm supposed to exhibit in a life that honors God, how does that relate to Jesus' words, you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest? How do I strive for rest? Am I striving or am I resting? Which one is it? How do I strive and rest at the exact same time? And yet the Bible, over and over and over again, it tells you, strive, rest, strive, rest. Am I working my fingers to the bone? to see people come to Christ and to see God's reign of justice come to earth? Am I fighting like the Dickens, a war against my own flesh? Or am I quietly contemplating God's work for me in Christ, unafraid of the sin and what the devil could do to my eternal future? Which one is it? Am I focusing on my training or am I focusing on my recovery? Do I emphasize my training or do I emphasize my recovery? Do I emphasize striving or do I emphasize resting? And I think what we'll see over and over again in Hebrews is that the writer to the Hebrews gets that tension. And he thinks that those two things have to go hand in glove. 
entry into rest is not always restful, and unrest is not always all that holy. All of us, I think, know that more instinctively than we might think we do. No man, no one of us strove more to do the will of the Father than the Father's Son. And the writer to the Hebrews is clearly striving with every ounce of mental energy he has to study his Bible and see it come to life, to see it leap the gap from thousands of years and awaken sleepers in the first century, which is why he closes this passage by saying those memorable words. Look at verse 13. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the eyes of, of, the, of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now that scares me at first to know that I'm naked before the one whose word is a two-edged sword and pierces all these different things that seem unpierceable, soul and spirit, whatever that means. That scares me initially, but it doesn't have to. It could be so much worse. All of us strive and strive and strive and strive some more, worried that others, I strive worrying that you, all of you in this room, know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And I strive to keep them hidden and to make sure that you believe good things about me. And I'm terrified about what people think about me. And I strive and I strive and I strive. But verse 13 says God isn't that way at all and His Word isn't that way. It's open here before us and we can't hide from it. It pursues us. It does these things. But what does it tell us? It reminds us it's better to give than to receive. It tells us that the one who comes to save us is the one whose yoke is easy and the one whose burden is light. It tells us what we heard two weeks ago. Consider the ravens. They don't have to gather. They don't have storehouses. And yet God feeds them all of how much more value are you than birds. And so if it's true that that Word of God exposes you, that's the thing you want exposing you. You don't want anything else exposing you. Every time His goodness, His acceptance, His grace, His willingness to forgive comes and breaks into our life, that's coming in through that Word that's sharp. So secondly, today, if you looked at verses 1 through 5 of Hebrews chapter 4, you would say, wow, this is like, for the most part, just really bad news. It's bad news for the Israelites. I don't know if it's bad news for me, but it's bad news. Your fathers, meaning our long great-great-great-great-grandfathers, the Israelites, they never entered God's rest. And the writer doesn't even mention that Joshua eventually leads the people into the promised land, though we know that he did. And truly, we know from the history of the Old Testament that even when they got to the promised land, it never was like a place of rest. It never was a place that was restful for them. One of the most interesting verses that you find in the Bible, and you see this, I don't know, a handful of times in the Old Testament. 
but it's kind of an odd verse that we can't relate to at all, but it'll say, one day, every man shall sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. And of course, we don't have vines. Or, I mean, vines we get rid of, and fig trees we wish we had. We don't understand the context of that. But the point is, That comes up in the prophets over and over and over again because even though God brought the people into the promised land through Joshua, somehow they didn't even have their own vines and their fig trees to sit under. And so even though this is one of the most densely woven arguments you'll find in the entire book of Hebrews, it's also one of the sweetest pieces, I think, that we could find in the whole book of Hebrews. If each of us could learn, I think, to say to our spouses or to our parents or to our friends or to our coworkers what the writer says that David says, man, I think we could turn the world upside down. And that's this. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. Your fathers, they harden, your, they harden their hearts. And yesterday... You hardened your heart. And tomorrow, none of us have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what the doctors are going to say tomorrow. I don't know that for sure your marriage is going to feel healthy and full again tomorrow. I do not know what your children are going to turn out like. I don't know any of that. The only thing I know is that today, God is speaking to you and He's saying, You don't have to harden your hearts against Him. Your fathers did that, and they never, ever, ever, ever entered my rest. So finally, what's rest? We could talk about that all day. Uh, You could, you could, you know, like I said about the rest of Hebrews 4, you could spend a whole sermon talking about rest. We could talk about the anxiety that all of us feel. We could talk about insomnia for an hour, which I know is rampant among all of you. And we could recontextualize this and make it a sermon about insomnia. We could, I could give you a biblical theology of rest really easy. I could tell you that Adam found rest in the garden. I could tell you that he lost it when he sinned through the curse. I could tell you about the rest that God promised through the wilderness wandering that we've been talking about that never materialized. I could tell you about the rest that the prophets at the end of the Old Testament foretold. We could talk about the rest that Jesus actually gave people here on earth, both Jew and Gentile both. And we can even talk about the eschatological repose that we will all find in the new heavens and the new, but, and the new earth. But none of that matters. What I want to know is, why are we so fatigued? Why is fatigue so frequent in all of our lives? Why do I toss and turn every single night, sometimes sleep, sometimes not sleep, and still wake up fatigued? Why do I believe that I'll finally get rest when my children get older and come and stop coming into my room at 3 a.m. and waking me up when they can take care of themselves? Why do I think I'll rest then? Why do I think I'll finally rest when I advance in my career enough to where my boss doesn't come over me and ask me about 
a TPS report or a memo or whatever? Why do I think that I'll rest when I finally retire? Because then illness comes and then it's no joke to anybody. The next moment is the grave. Here's what Hebrews says about rest. And we'll close with this. There is a rest for the people of God. And it says that one way or another, every single part of Hebrews, will hear that one way or another every single Sunday in Hebrews. Striving to enter God's rest is a community project. And it does mean learning that Jesus is everything for you. But the rest that I need to find, I need your help to find it. And I need you to let me help you find rest. Your rest is my business and my rest is your business. The rest that I need from feeling like I need to be perfect before God and others, the rest that I need to be free from the anxiety that I have about my past, the rest that I need from the anxiety that I have about my future, all of that, I'm going to tell you right now, that's your business, and all of that in you, that's mine. This is a community project. And that means that we all have to learn to be vulnerable enough to share our own fears, the places of our own unrest, and we have to be willing to die before we let CPC become a place that's not safe for that kind of community. And in all of that, we have to look to the pioneer, right? we got to consider Jesus, the one who rested from the work of redemption and who, listen to this carefully, sits at the right hand of his Father and still strives in intercession for each and every one of you so that one day you finally will enter into God's full rest in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray, Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we trust that you're bringing all of these things to us. We trust that nobody's, we're, we're not interested in putting on facades here and pretending like we're all in unrest in one way or another. But we want to believe the words that your son said. That we who are burdened, who are heavy laden, that we can come and we can take your yoke because it's light And you're going to give us rest. And so we pray that you would do that. I pray that today would be a Sabbath rest for every single person in this room. And that we would make it our business to be restful for those people that are around us. We love you. For any of that to happen, we need your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.